is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 139 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, it's one of those special episodes because I'm joined by not one, but two awesome guests. I'm joined by Heidi Goody and Ian Grant, an amazing collaborative duo who write hilarious books. And that is the topic of today's conversation, how to write funny shit. But first to last week's question, which was, how are you looking after yourself? We had a shit ton of responses last week. So thank you, everybody. Um, I think what I might do, because we had so many, is just read a couple and then sort of nod to uh, everybody else. First in then, April Jones, who said, well, I doubt most, if anyone, will think of it as taking care of myself. And it's definitely not the healthiest coping mechanism um, that I uh, let fester and boil over rather than looking after myself. But when it all becomes too much, I just cry and sleep the day away. I don't really take care of myself. I just clean up the mess after and keep going. I guess the bright side is I've gotten really good at picking myself up after it all crashes down. And I think, look, I, you know, I just wanted to give you a hug, to be honest with you. Um, But I do actually think that crying and sleeping is a very healthy way of dealing with it. Because, you know, when we internalize and absorb all of these motions, our bodies, our minds, they are all connected. And there is, there is an impact on that. And I know that because, you know, I am terrible for internalizing and not crying and not you know, experiencing these emotions. And then I end up with headaches or like (laughs) shortness of breath or whatever, because I haven't externalized or or communicated how I'm feeling. So I definitely think that crying and sleeping, sleep is so, so restorative and healing. I am definitely realizing, um, actually Jenna Moresi said something really, uh, um, uh, poignant to me the other day she said that um when you are in times of higher emotional emotional stress or like higher stress because of work or for whatever reason um you need more sleep than normal just to cope with the normal things and I was like oh that might be why I'm so fucking tired all the time right now because I'm not getting any more sleep and the days are a bit more stressful at the moment so Yeah, I I just think that's fantastic. Okay, so Sarah Snipes said, saying no to things that feel even slightly like it might be too much. Scheduling exercise on my calendar, sitting outside and just observing nature, phoneless. I was about to publish my first children's book and sign a contract with an illustrator. It would have been out by September and I ended up telling her no for various reasons. One of which I am going through a lot of stress with my son, who is a neurodiverse uh, 13-year-old. My gut knew that all the scheduling deadlines, etc. was going to be a bit too much stress right now. As soon as I told her no, a huge amount of pressure came off my shoulders and I felt lighter. It's not the right time. Also, I could not stomach the amount of money I was going to have to spend for her, even though it would be a beautiful book. I kept thinking I would spend less than this on marketing one of my adult or YA novels. Okay, so we then we also had comments from Carla Halia, Ian Worrell, uh, S.W. Miller, N.L. Blanford and S.M. Pierce author, though I think that those last couple were on Instagram. So thank you very much to everybody who commented. Um, I have read all the comments. I really appreciate it. I know I haven't had a chance to reply to everybody, but please know that I do actually read every single comment, even if I don't reply. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much. The other thing that I just wanted to say quickly is that... um, 
So I've got one more week, one more episode that I will record in real time. And next week I will will record... Oh my goodness me. I will record two episodes back to back. So uh, that's because I'm going to New York and Washington, D.C. If you would like to because I'm I'm probably not going to be very communicative communicative when I'm away clearly I need more coffee this morning I'm not gonna be very communicative whilst I'm away but I will be posting loads and loads and loads of images and photos and stuff to my stories so if you want to see what I'm up to come follow me on Instagram at Sasha Black author okay this week's question is how do you self-sabotage and there's a reason i'm asking this question which we'll come to in a moment okay the book recommendation this week is a patron's book so i am recommending tinseltown toils by j renee lawrence this is an an anthology of short stories the anthology series is called everyday villains Everybody's got problems. It doesn't matter if you're an internationally adored superhero, a warlock working for minimum wage, or an awkward teen villain about to lose their V-card. We're all doing our best with whatever life throws our way. With heroes, villains, and normal humans living and working side by side, potholes aren't the only thing you need to watch out for on the streets of Los Angeles. Epic battles between good and evil cause traffic on the 101, and tourists can fall victim to unlicensed alien abductions on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Sometimes sweet, sometimes scathing, this wickedly funny collection combines magical realism with rich imaginative prose to create a unique yet strangely relatable world. This book contains a sludge monster's sticky divorce, faxes coming out of a robot's behind, a very pissed off genie, ballot information, a talking dog with dragon DNA, crude black magic spells, sorry spills, a single human mother and her newborn monster, more than one existential crisis, a bit of the author's soul. I love it. And I know Jay's writing because I have had the pleasure of reading and selecting her story for the Rebel Diaries anthology. So I highly, highly recommend that you go and check out a copy of this book at this anthology and it will be, there will be a link in the show notes. Okay, so in personal update this week. Uh, uh, first of all, I'm just going to apologise. I have changed my chair. My throne, much as I love it, um, is not that comfortable for working in, you know, eight hours a day or however long I work for. So I've swapped it to more of a gaming style chair. It's just a temporary solution until I can afford um, a, a chair that is sort of more uh, ergonomic and orthotic for my back. I don't know if that's the right word. Anyway, um, so it's squeaking a little bit. <laughs> I'm hoping that the podcast isn't picking up too many squeaks because they sound a bit dodgy. But anyway, um, my, re- my, my week... <laughs> I'm so tired. I have... Look, I like to keep shit real on this podcast. And I also like to be quite positive because I don't want to just moan and put, you know, negative shit out in the world. But, you know, sometimes we have difficult weeks. And I have had a difficult week. It has been mentally... I have been doing backflips, I would say. I finished The Anatomy of a Bestseller and promptly spiralled quite hard. I It's the first time I finished a book and I... Actually, I don't know if it's the first time. Actually, you, could, you guys could probably tell me this because if you go back and listen to the episodes when I finished other books, I'm probably like, oh. But um, yeah, I, I sort of phoenix burned my way to the end of the book and then spiralled quite hard into thinking it wasn't good enough, that I can't write, I've lost my edge, it's not funny, um, that it wasn't useful... 
it, it was really strange because this book, because it is very much like process driven um, in terms of showing you how to do the deconstruction, it was a lot easier to write than, say, the side characters book, which was very... Um, dense information this is more of a this is how you do this and here are loads of examples on how to do it and then this is how you assess the market this is how you assess this so it it was a lot easier to write and I think the fact that I didn't really struggle writing it then sent me spiraling thinking oh well it's not good enough the, the struggle wasn't hard enough therefore it can't be good enough all of this bollocks which is just complete and utter nonsense but you can't help how your brain works and then I have had some quite intense coaching sessions of late and I have gone through quite a lot of realizations about why I am self-sabotaging because I am self-sabotaging in a few different ways um and I haven't had a great sales week as well it's been quite a long time since I haven't had a good sales week and so that has also not really helped um my Amazon ads are not working very well at the moment so I've just it's been one of those weeks and like I just really felt like I didn't want to lie and that I didn't want to be like oh hi everyone everything's great because it's not fucking great it's been a really tough week and you know, but that said, also, I'm acutely aware, you know, I do have a lot of privilege. I am very lucky to be doing this full time. And so, you know, they are first world problems, of course, but um, they're my problems. And I found this week difficult. <laughs> um, the coaching sessions in particular have been amazing. Like, I don't know if you guys, how many of you are with Becca Symes, um, Better Faster Academy, but I in particular go to Ellie and she is just exceptionally good at coaching and she's amazing and I recommend everybody actually not everybody because then she might not have time for me <laughs> but anyway she is amazing um and she's just taught me so much about myself I genuinely feel like I have learned more about myself in the last year than I have in the last 10 and that has led to a lot of changes in the background um a lot of saying no to things focusing on the right stuff but that but growth is painful <laughs> it's really fucking painful so it's also been emotionally exhausting and i i feel like i am now over the bulk of the covid exhaustion but i'm still getting these occasional bouts where I am absolutely fucked during the day um but they're sort of few and far between but coming back to what jenna said I am finding that if I don't get at least seven and a half hours sleep, I really struggle the next day. And that is not something that I've ever really experienced. I've always been able to cope on six hours. I've always, you know, obviously it's better for me to get more than seven hours sleep. But, you know, for a long time, especially because I have a little one who gets up early and I'm a night owl, six hours is what I have been getting. And it's not enough. It's not enough anymore. Um, I don't know if that's because of like the mental work I've been doing and the fact that I have been writing loads um, and also that I haven't been reading as much at the moment. I've been in a real drought with my reading since the beginning of April. So I've lost, I feel like I'm not generating a lot of energy pennies either. So it's sort of like a big um, swirling clusterfuck of all of the wrong, wrong things that has led to me being exhausted. And I don't know about you guys, but whenever I'm tired, I am less rational and 
everything is harder to cope with. Um, I have really noticed that, um, aside from hormonal things, um, when I am tired, I that is the times that I feel like the world is ending and I'm never going to be good at anything, and rah, rah, all that fucking dramatic bullshit um, that we all do to ourselves. Um, or oh, maybe it's just me. You're on your own there, Sasha. Um, yeah, so that's it, I think. Oh, 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 yes. And the one last thing is I think that because I know I am running down towards a holiday um, and a true proper holiday, uh, I am struggling already because I'm like, oh, we're on the run down to a holiday. Like my brain just wants to stop. It's it's ready. It is fucking time to stop. So yeah, it, it wants to quit already. So what am I working on? Well, as I have told you, I finished The Anatomy of a Bestseller. I am desperately, there's my chair creaking, desperately trying to finish editing it before I go away. I've got less than half the book to go. I am hoping that that will be done tomorrow. Um, I That's sort of the deadline that I have set myself is to, is to absolutely hand it off by the end of tomorrow. Today is Thursday the 19th, so Friday the 20th, I want it gone. And then next week, uh, the week before the trip, I am going to spend the whole week working on admin, um, dealing with my inbox, like, oh my God, my fucking inbox. I literally have emails that are like a month old that I have not replied to. So I'm just shit generally at replying to emails. Um, but yeah, so I've got my inbox to deal with and all of the tasks associated with that. And then I am also going to work on some presentations so that when I get back from America, I will just be working on um, fiction and potentially a different project that I'm not going to talk about just yet. So yeah, okay, that was a bit of a longer update this week than I normally do. Uh, but fuck it, it's my fucking show. So I'm going to update you all. All right, Rebel of the Week this week is Dharma Keller. Dharma says, for the past six years, I've worked as a caregiver for a non-profit, taking care of senior citizens in need. I had only taken this job when I couldn't find anything else after spending several years caring for my aging in-laws. Before that, I had worked as a freelance web developer, but no one had wanted to hire a middle-aged woman who had been out of the industry for years. Working as a caregiver is certainly rewarding. I enjoy helping people. But as much as I loved my clients and the organisation I worked for, the pay was poor and the tasks physically and emotionally demanding. And then this past January, my department was called in for a mandatory meeting where I learned that the non-profit was phasing out their caregiving services. Oh no. I was in shock. My wife and I were already struggling financially and now I was losing my job. That's when I noticed the non-profit had an opening for an accountant. Despite not having a business degree or ever having worked as, as an accountant, I applied. I have always loved math. I was on the math high school team. That's amazing. I have acquired some accounting skills running my author business and I learn new skills quickly so what did I have to lose while applying and preparing for my interview I honed up on general accounting principles watching YouTube videos going through testing books etc long story short I got the job a career kind of job that pays a decent wage and I love what I do working with numbers figuring out how to enter complex transactions solving problems it's fun so for those wondering whether to apply for that dream job, go for it. You might just get it. I love this so much. Like this is a rebellion against self-doubt. 
And I tell you, I have been suffering with self-doubt and sabotage, self-sabotage so much of late that I just love that this is the story that we have got this week. I think it's so empowering. I think it is a big fuck you to the doubt that resides in our brains. And yes, I love, 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 love this story. And congratulations on the dream job as well. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to Becca on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. All right, we have one new patron. Welcome and a gigantic thank you to Karen Heenan. Uh, And of course, a massive thank you to all of my existing patrons. I really, really do love and appreciate you guys. I love the community that we have. And you guys not only help to um, keep this podcast running, you make me feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile. So thank you, guys. If you would like to support the show and get not only early access to all of the episodes, but other bonus content, like we often run sprints together. There is a critique group running as part of the Rebel Slack group. There is the Rebel Readers Masterclasses. We had a random um, additional free class from uh, a um, professor at a university last night who specializes in medieval swearing and like the etymology of of swear words. Um, We have had a bunch of really cool things go on. And of course, we also have our monthly poison and prose session. So there is a stack of goodies and content if you would like to support the show. And you can do that from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, there is a sponsor of the show this week, and the sponsor is Kobo Writing Life. Kobo Writing Life is Kobo's free, fast, and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. And with that in mind, let's talk about how KWL authors can reach library readers. Right now, digital books are reaching more people than ever, and libraries are becoming an integral part of that. In 2021, 121 digital library systems powered by Overdrive surpassed 506 million checkouts. This means a lot of happy library readers. And library readers are some of the most engaged and passionate book lovers out there. You can easily add your book to Overdrive's library system through Kobo Writing Life. All you need to do is go to the rights and distribution section of your book, click yes to Overdrive and enter a library price. Your book will then be available to librarians to purchase for multi-loan use, but also for a one-time checkout option. And you'll earn 50 on every library sale. If you're not too sure what price you should set for your book, we recommend roughly the same price as a mass market paperback. Your book could be loaned out several times, which is why we encourage pricing higher than your normal ebook. And don't forget to tell your readers that they can now pick up your book in libraries. If you're interested in taking part in library promotions, email our writing team, uh, sorry, email our team at writinglife at kobo.com and we'll add you to our mailing list. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast and find us on socials. You can create your free account at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Hey, that is it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Heidi Goody and Ian Grant. Heidi lives in North Warwickshire with her husband and a fluctuating mix of offspring and animals. 
Ian lives in South Birmingham with his wife and a fluctuating mix of offspring and animals. They aren't sure how many novels they've written together since 2011, but it's a surprisingly large number. Hello and welcome. Hello. Nice being here. Yeah, I'm so excited. So we got to meet officially at London Book Fair, where you were robbed, can I just say? But anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) we did meet at London Book Fair and we had a lovely chat and sort of coffee without the coffee. Um, And uh, obviously I knew you through uh, uh, Ally's Facebook group and the Ally community anyway. But for those listeners who don't perhaps know as much as I do about you guys, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you? And like, how how did you guys get to where you are today? What was your journey? Um, shall I start? Um, we've met at Birmingham Writers Group and we've been writing in collaboration since 2011, as the bio said. And, and the journey, the journey for us has been super fun because we decided to have a go at writing together back in 2011. Um, We'd done a collaborative writing workshop with our writers group and right at the end of the workshop, the facilitator who was running the workshop said, who would like to write together? And I think the only people in the room of people that put our hands up were were Ian and me. And and we were practically jigging in our seats with excitement. And, And still after that, it took me I think it, it took me a week to gather up the courage to write to Ian and say, shall we write something then? Because it really felt like uh, putting myself out there, like the fear of rejection, actually. It's kind of like a dating thing. <laughs> I, I thought we'd write a short story, but Ian was straight in there with, uh, no, we're going to write a novel. <laughs> yeah, um, we... Um... We, we, we started writing a novel, gosh, yeah, about, about 2011. Uh, we decided we wanted to write something that was funny. We wanted to write something that was fantasy. Uh, we wrote a book, Clovenhoop, in which Satan loses his job and has to move to Birmingham. And um, we kind of went from there. Uh, we enjoyed it so much, even though, you know, starting out in self-publishing is really tricky, really slow. Um, and we wrote a, a, a few more books in the Clovenhoop series. Then we branched off. We wrote... Um, couple of silly fairy tales and a, a witch's novel. Um, then, we moved, then we slid sideways into writing some sort of uh, Lovecraftian urban horror comedy set in Birmingham again, which has been a very much a bedrock of um, our writing. And then in the last two years, we've also slid further into writing crime, also with a comedy element. We've probably written about 26, 27 novels together, in the last 10 years. Um, and, I, and I suppose um, re- really that, you know, we, we, we just keep doing it because we enjoy it. Um, and we know we're very pleased that, you know, people do like our books, but whatever we write, there's always been some kind of comedic element. I think that's always ties us together and brings us, you know, back back together writing as, as a pair. Um, yeah. But we're not really written apart for much of the last 10 years at all. That's amazing. Uh, it's it as somebody who struggles to collaborate, I I am so deeply fascinated when these business partnerships arise and like how they arise and how the collaboration like functions structurally. And I know that we had a little bit of a chat about that at London Book Fair, but I wondered if you guys could talk about 
the journey that you've been on from that initial, okay, let's have a bash at this type collaboration to the slick machine that you now have today. (laughs) (laughs) Slick machine, Heidi. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I was really keen that we should uh, go down the independent publishing route right from the start because it was... It was beginning to be a thing, and I was reading things on the internet from um, some of those early success stories like Joe Conrad, and it, it looked fantastic. It looked like a great way to take control of the publishing process, and, and also the fact that, um, yeah, it's, it's about control again, that, that you can generate your own um, publicity and marketing, and the entire thing appealed to me greatly. And so I think it's fair to say that the, the, the split of work between the two of us has always been that Ian keeps me on course with spreadsheets and, uh, yeah, general sort of clown taming, have you called it, Ian? Um, I guess clown taming, probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah he's the clown, I'm the clown tamer. That's pretty much the system. <laughs> because... What, I, I do suffer from a bit of a disease where I think that marketing is attention seeking. And, you know, to a certain extent, it works. Uh, attention seeking can, can work for marketing. And so I love to come up with outlandish ideas for uh, drawing attention to our writing. But in, in more practical terms about how we've uh, shared the work, the, the, there's also the, the question of how we share the writing, which that's evolved a lot, actually, if, if we're going to call ourselves a slick machine. I, I think we've got much more productive with the writing models that we use. I, I'm certain that's happened, Ian, and I think you've done it with spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I think yeah, we have. We have. I mean, our, our actual rate of output has increased, and you know, we, we enjoyed doing what we're doing. Well, because actually, I've got to say, the pandemic was an interesting thing in that obviously we were often stuck at home. Although we had notional day jobs, we had a lot more time at home. And we should have been writing a lot more, but I think actually the the pandemic, at least in its initial phases, kind of messed with our mojo about what we, you know, should be doing. I think we had to spend a bit of time just trying to get our heads back into what we enjoyed writing and what was fun. But we seem to have got ourselves onto a fairly decent process now, which does does appear to be the clown and the clown taming model, (laughs) where Heidi goes and writes some... It's not always this way around, by the way, but Heidi goes and writes something quite outlandish and daft and I come along behind and and tidy up and 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 do extra it's almost it's almost not quite it's almost like Heidi does the first draft and I do the second draft I mean that's a a vast simplification there um but then the magic seems to occur in both elements I mean in terms of moving from being those initial just writing a book to becoming uh the professional writers we are now I think there's an element of We've always talked about our working ethos, which links to consistency of work and the consistency of effort, as in always basically turning up and doing the job. Um, and I think it's always being that consistent person and being nice. You can't, you cannot at all underestimate how important it is to be nice in this business. And then, and then I do genuinely argue there's an element of luck that comes along. You do all the good, solid, professional, nice stuff until that magical opportunity comes along. And, that, and they have come, you know, in, in occasional bumps and leaps uh, at different times. So I think, you know, when we had some really um, 
successful marketing through BookBub. That was great for us. But also, for instance, when we had um, Hollywood come knocking at the door, which was it was brilliant. That was fantastic. When they, by the way, there's no movie happening anytime soon whatsoever because that's Hollywood for you. But the idea that suddenly there were people looking to buy our properties to you know turn into things, you know, again, it, it's a stroke of luck, but it comes out after you know just continually doing that work and you know working at it sort of thing. Um, I don't believe in luck. Just going to put that out there. <laughs> I know it's controversial I always piss people off when I say that but I'm, I just don't believe in luck I am um, that, that comes from a mix of my I don't know if you know the Clifton strengths but that's definitely sourced from some of my strengths because I like to I feel like if I don't have control of my life then what is I don't know anyway I'm not gonna get philosophical um so I'm curious do you guys so you've sort of mentioned that broadly speaking Heidi does the first draft broadly speaking you do the second draft do you outline? Do you, how do you plan a book? How do you approach a book together? Like, where is the seed of the idea? How do you, how do you collectively decide what the best thing to do is next? When it comes to ideas, I mean, the original germ of a novel, I, I literally think we have generated ideas in every imaginable way. Uh, we've both, we, we've both, we, well, we've, we've written novels based on dreams that we've both had. Um, you know, mad dreams. And it's like, oh, that might make the basis for a novel. We've done that. We've generated ideas. And I remember a train journey where we did this a bit too loudly and annoyed people, Ian, where we've gone, oh, what if we mix this film with this famous film and smoosh the plots together and, you know, come up with a new thing. We've done that. And, and yeah, we, we like having ideas. We always have more ideas than we have time to write novels, actually. So we've got a big... I, I, I think, that, I think that's absolutely true. More, more ideas, novels, which is exactly the right way around. It should be, obviously. Um, I, and, I, and I think there's this element of us that we 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 we, we picture scenes. And I know we've potentially had this conversation before, Sasha, where you know you kind of go, I can picture this amazing scene where these things happen, and you want to set up a story that gets to that scene and does those things. Um, and I think that drives a lot of what we do. That genuinely, it is amazing how many of our stories actually do start off approximately as dreams and i think actually and i don't mean you write down your dreams because dreams are usually rubbish and useless things um as my family know full well most of my dreams are about slightly disappointing days out they're not they're not they're not frightening you know we go and visit a museum but the museum closes early that's kind of like my most of my dreams um but we have these dreams. So there was this one time, I think it was very similar times, Heidi had a dream in which somebody, I think it was at the breakfast table, if I remember dreaming correctly, had rented out part of their brain to somebody else. Um, not almost, almost at the same time, I had a, a nightmarish dream in which uh, Christmas elves, like the elf on the shelf, were coming into the bedroom to stab us in our sleep. Um, and both of those turned into novels. One, one turned into the science fiction uh, novel uh, Jaffel Inc., um, which you know is one of actually one of our one of our better loved novels that people really like. This about a not too distant future society where we essentially uh, let Facebook or the equivalent of Facebook uh, use our brain's processing power as payment for letting us use Facebook. Um, and then the other one turned into a very silly. Christmas elf horror comedy, 
um, yeah, which helped stalk people and slaughter them for their own wicked delight. So, I mean, those things come up, and, and I think we're grabbed by a narrative, by an idea, then we want to do that. Um, and often I think, um, I, th- I think when it comes to the comedic aspect, Heidi is often drawn to that big scene. It's kind of like that notion of, I want a scene where there's a rock concert and 10,000 nuns and a custard pie fight sort of thing. That's, <laughs> that's kind of the thing that Heidi gravitates towards. And I, I think I do tend to gravitate towards much more of a, uh, a dialogue based of here's a couple of people in a stupid situation resolving it, you know, in a stupid kind of uh, manner. It's, it's, it's almost, yeah, it, it's, it's slapstick versus witty comedy. Um, I, w- I would argue, by the way, at this point, that none, neither of us specifically personally claim to be funny, do we? Um, you know, <laughs> we just happen to people who do like them. Sorry, Heidi. I was just saying, we're not going to go on stage with our comedy routine anytime soon. No, absolutely not. No, not in the least. I think there is, there is that, obviously that problematic thing that comedy is very subjective. This is hilarious. My dreams are never as exciting, I don't think. I Last night, I actually, I don't normally remember my dreams, but for some reason last night I did remember my dreams. I woke up this morning and I was like, my wife was very disappointed with me in my dream because we were going to the airport and I decided to ride my son's new push scooter. <laughs> to the Heathrow airport. That was how I was going to get there. And so she was very disappointed in me when I turned up at the airport late because she'd been waiting there for me. My son wasn't there. So God knows where he was, or I think my mum was bringing him. And then and then we had a photo at the airport in a photo booth. And that was my dream. <laughs> like, I don't have anything as exciting as like brain elves and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, anyway, dreams are bananas. Um. Okay, one of the things that I'm curious about in terms of the like the collaboration before we get more into humor, what do you think has kept you together? Like, what is it that creates a positive long term business partnership together? What is the glue? Do you think that holds you together? I, I think we've already mentioned the work ethic, and I, I do genuinely believe that that is the most important part uh, of this. But on top of that, we, we, we haven't mentioned spouse meals, I don't think. So, spouse um, meals, yes. The important part because uh, we, we both have families and, you know, they're both our families and our, our partners put up with a lot from us. So we, we came up with this arrangement a while back that every time we finished a book, and, and actually there, there are some, you know, audit trail difficulties there because <laughs> when we think we've finished a book and when they think we've finished a book, there's a different count. <laughs> uh, we're supposed to take our spouses out for a delicious meal with lots of cocktails and you know is this as a four or is this yes. as a two ah as a four yeah so uh, the spouse meal has become an important ritual and uh and yes keep keeps our, our delightful spouses on side i th- i think i think basically what it is that actually you know obviously you get sort of like you know football widows or I don't know, gaming widows or whatever. Basically our, our other halves have formed some sort of writing widows club, <laughs> you know, where where they, they sit around and bemoan the fact that we act like buffoons the entire time. <laughs> um I, I think I think that yeah that's very much the case. I mean I think the thing that keeps us together and the thing I think one thing that tends to annoy people when we talk about writing to them is that we've not yet had a proper argument. We've never Shut actually up. No, I mean we've been 
mildly peeved with each other, and that's usually because communication has fallen down in some way, and we've we've not been listened to. But you know, we've managed, and and again, I'm going to throw luck in here. But you know, this idea that we've not managed to annoy each other. But I think there is that thing to that work ethic thing. In the, for instance, we both want to get books written to the same kind of quality and in the same kind of time frame. We're never poking the other person to to hurry up or to write better, um, you know. And, and I, th- I think actually that we both want to do the same thing and go on the same journey. I was just listening to um, uh, uh, the the audio book of uh, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, which is about manned missions to outer space, and the idea that if you know if you put you know astronauts into a capsule together for anything more than a few months, they will murder each other. Um, because, you know, we can't just cope with other human beings. So I think actually finding people that you're willing to, you know, inhabit the same space with and having the same kinds of ideas. And there is an element of sacrifice in that as well. I mean, I think, you know, if we had diverged from the start and done our own things, we would be writing very different books now. Um Mine would probably be much more sensible, but much more boring. You know, Heidi's would probably be much more silly, but much less readable or something. You know, there, there's, 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 those, there's those two horses pulling the thing. And I think we both realise that it's that shocking thing. And it is, in a sense, a bit like a marriage that we realise, you know, that whatever happens, we are better off together than apart. Oh, that sounds sappy now that I've said it. But, you know, we are better off together than apart. Oh, I love this podcast. Um, (laughs) Okay, do you think there are any, like, mistakes to avoid in partnership? You sort of alluded to, like, arguments and listening and communication. So, I don't know, do you think there are any other mistakes to avoid when trying to collaborate? Oh, I think there's heaps. Um, We've learned not to be pressured about anything actually anything we write so so there's a rule uh and we 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 didn't come up with this idea but but if if we write any sentence and the other person doesn't like it then it can be scrubbed and no questions asked you don't get to reinstate it so the same goes for for ideas or 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 any other thing so we have to make sure we're both in complete agreement with the finished product other mistakes um I mean, on, on that topic, if I might, Heidi, is, is that um, because actually not being precious about anything is a great quality in a writer, gently. You know, you write something. When you write your first thing, you go, oh, this is my special baby that I have made. And I'm setting, sending it out into the world. Um, one of the things I think you know, collaborative writing has taught us is that actually, yeah, you know, there's nothing that you can say is special and, and irreplaceable, which is handy because then along come editors who, you know, they could quite happily, you know, uh, murderize, you know, your precious babies. And again, you know, when it comes to things like cover art or marketing or whatever, you know, not having any kind of overt preciousness about things. So I think actually um, it's good that we were forced to shed that sense of preciousness early on. Sorry, Heidi, you were going to say something else there, I'm sure. Oh, no, no, I, I, I think this is all good. Um, but ha- how you spend the money as well, I think there are, there's plenty of potential always for falling out about money. Um, but we've, we've, I think, generally agreed on, on where it should go. And you know, this, this, this is a good 
way of spending our money and this perhaps isn't. Um, sometimes we make mistakes, you know, test and fail, but it's all good. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's loads more. I think, I think that, that element of risk-taking there is actually quite important, and that's often financial risk-taking. And I, I'm the cautious one out of the two of us there, by the way, and, and therefore usually the wrong one. <laughs> um, in the, in the, oh no, because you know it's like you know when we first moved into audiobooks, it was kind of right where we're going to pay someone else to make these audiobooks for us. Of course we are, but you know it's not a cheap initial outlay. So you kind of go, oh, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And Heidi rightly pointing out that, that hang on, you know people like audiobooks. They want audiobooks. You know you've got to make these things. You've got to make these gestures. Um, yeah, and, and again, you smashed always... it as well because oh. I'm listening to Clovenhoof and the narrator is so fucking funny. And of course, part of that is also you. You guys are fucking funny as well. But the narrator uh, is also brilliant. So Matthew Lloyd Davis, who did the Clovenhoof books for us, the Odd Jobs books for us, and he's doing some crime books for us at the moment. Uh, he is a great vocal actor, really inhabits the role. Um, his, his comic delivery is fantastic. And actually, that's one of those situations where Heidi, uh, someone else we knew who had success with the book, um, the, the, the actor Matthew Lloyd Davis had narrated that audio book and had won an international award for it. So Heidi just went, let's get in touch with that guy, you know, and see if he'll do our books. And, and, it, and it was the mo- it, it's been one of the best decisions we've ever made, actually. I mean, he's been, he's been a great partner to work with and, and the, just the listening pleasure people get from those audiobooks. You know, he is one of those guys who could read out the telephone directory. Oh, that's an old-fashioned reference, isn't it? Um, but who could read out the telephone directory and it'd still be kind of interesting. So, no, we're, we're so pleased with how audio has transformed things as well. Okay, let's turn to humour because that's initially why I contacted you and, and was like, okay, let's, let's, let's do a show on humour. I love humor I like to write humor I'm I, f- funny enough I write a lot of humor in my non-fiction books but um I'm now more moving more into maybe less humor and more banterous relationships um as opposed to kind of slapstick or or the um Douglas Adams type humor um but I I know that we have had a conversation about why humor can be difficult to sell and market. So especially as an indie author. So I just wondered if we could maybe share that or or a snippet of that conversation about why you think um, being an indie author and writing humor is a difficult sell, because I agree having done nonfiction books that are humorous they it can you become marmite i think i feel like i am marmite people love me or hate me and there's not really anything in between so why why is it challenging we've we've learned and this this is through testing and failing we've learned that if we talk about our work and 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 try to tell people that it's funny they um people resist that they like to discover that it's funny so we as we do our marketing, we tend to describe it as the genre that it fits in um, and, and let the, the humour be a side issue. And it can be part of it. If we're making an advert, we'll, we'll try and make it a funny advert. But what we don't do is plaster the word funny all over it because that does seem to be an off-putting factor. I, I that, Yeah, sorry, Ian, you're going to yeah. say something. No, no, because uh, it, it's like um, the bookshop analogies. Like, you know, you walk into Waterstones or a bookshop, 
And there's your crime, there's your literary fiction, there's your science fiction. There's almost never a category in a bookshop that says um, humour or comedy. Um, and I think, I think part of that also is if, if you went into a bookshop and there's a, as a, as a category, a bookshelf that says, you know, these books will make you laugh. There's something very human that we've discussed before. That if someone says to you, this will make you laugh, the most human reaction is to go, I don't think it will. Come on, try it. And I think that's it. That you to be told that something is going to be funny actually creates an antagonism. Whereas, you know, as we've discussed before, we've compared it to horror. And I think actually, bizarrely, I think horror and comedy do something very similar to the brain. If you say, you know, this film or this book will terrify you and you read it or you watch the film and it doesn't, you go, meh, it was all right. You watch a comedy film and you do not laugh, then, then you feel you've been cheated. You've been offended to your very core. We hate unfunny things. I think we've, we've had a conversation previously where we, we think about comedians we don't like. Everyone's got comedians they don't like. I'm going to offend anyone by naming them. But oh, I will. They, no, they, <laughs> they, they literally offend us with their existence. You kind of go, why are you on telly? Why are you there? You are not funny. Who's laughing? It's like, it, it, it's the thing that does the rounds that, you know, everyone seems to hate Mrs. Brown's boys on the TV. Okay. I don't watch it, but you know, Brendan O'Carroll, he's actually done a great job doing what he does. I can't stand it myself. But the amount of people who hate Mrs. Brown's boys is astonishing because it's not their comedy. Mm. Yeah, I definitely have a very adverse reaction to certain comedians. Like, I don't really like Jimmy Carr. My wife loves Jimmy Carr, finds him hilarious. And I'm like, but he's literally not funny. And she's like, oh, but he's so clever. And I'm like, no, he's just a dick. And she's like, but he's not. And I'm like, okay, honey, you can watch Jimmy Carr. I'm going to go and watch something silly like Michael McIntyre instead. And, uh, but it's just different types of humor, right? My wife is so dry. She, she, I find her hilarious, but I often find I'm having to translate for her. Like, because people will be like, oh, like when she says something, I'm like, no, 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 don't worry. She's joking. It's a joke. <laughs> but she'll have this deadpan, like Jack D type expression. And people are so shocked by what she said. And on the inside, she's laughing. But yeah, like, it is funny how we have these really strong reactions and yet like everybody loves to laugh i don't know a single person who doesn't love to laugh why would you not want that in your fiction and and yet you have got this very because you, you know you've already talked about some different flavors of comedy there you know sarcasm often used as comedy and it's fine as comedy um yeah you've also got quite um sardonic comedy essentially cruel humor then you know you mix that with like the, the visual thing of the the humor of embarrassment so watching some Ricky Gervais kind of office type thing where the funniness literally comes from the unpleasantness of the scenario. Um, you've then got, you know, slapstick and, and, and you've got verbal wordplay and they're all different things. And therefore, actually, what makes something funny is difficult. And I think mm. one of the things we found peculiar recently was that we started to write more crime. You know, we both asked around, oh, tell me some crime books that are funny. Um, and we both had recommendations. I've listened to some some really good authors who've written what's called, you know, what would be described externally as funny crime. And yet actually what you're reading is essentially nastiness, nastiness from beginning to end. That doesn't mean other people don't find it funny. It doesn't mean it isn't funny. 
but I'm kind of going, everybody's a complete asshole in this book. Why am I meant to be enjoying this experience? And so therefore that sense of comedy is entirely missing there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know about, I don't know what your experiences are there, Heidi. You know, it, it, um, you get those flavours. We, we both like to have um, characters you can root for in our novels. Uh, we, we've, we've discussed, in fact, um, I think Breaking Bad as an example. By the time Breaking Bad reaches the end, there is nobody in there that you like. I mean, the story is compelling and it's brilliant, but, but nobody is a likeable character. And, and we're quite fond of having somebody you can root for, uh, even if it's the devil, as in, as in Clovenhoof. We, we, we try and we have realised latterly that, that our novels um, carry a warmth with them that, that we, we try and uh, maintain. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you mentioned Ricky Gervais and like the cruel situations. I also don't like The Office, which is which it smacks of consistency because I don't like Jimmy Carr because he's cruel with his humour. Like I, I, and it's funny, isn't it? Because banter is at the expense of other people, but it's not cruel. And there's a fine line between sort of almost flirtatious, poking fun banter, and then cruel jokes on that are at the expense of somebody else. And that's where my line is, I think. Mm, I, I think it's one of the things, mm. sorry, Heidi. I, I, yeah, I was literally just saying punching up or punching down. We, we have that conversation. Absolutely. That, yeah. The, this idea that when we're, when we're making fun, we're always punching upwards. Because if you think, you know, obviously we pretend folks at fancy uh, science fiction comedy initially. If you look at the two big names, even though it's two dead white guys, you look at Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett, which people tend to reach their benchmarks. I always think it's very interesting that Douglas Adams, his comedy was frequently cruel it's about bad things randomly happening to people it actually douglas adams's humor i think a lot of it built out his sense of wonder of the universe and his desire to the world to be a nice place and then you get someone like terry pratchett whose humor one of the i think his greatest is his humanity and warmth he creates these lovely warm characters you want to spend so much time with and yet at the same time he is deep down one of the angriest men ever to write a novel. He's just angry about everything. Why is it like this? Um, and I think it's both the energy you come with and, and the impact you want to have. And these, these things, I, you know, are, are are very clear. And, and again, it, it, it's, it's that flavour thing. It's about what mm. flavour comedy you're after there. I never really thought of Douglas Adams as cruel. Like, which is interesting. So I'm going to have to like go back and read reread the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because I remember crying with laughter because I was laughing so hard at that. Intensely funny, but it's all about planets being blown up, pointless alien yeah. species being wiped out. Arthur Dent, nothing nice ever happens to him. Yeah, Actually, I know. Yeah. Um, and don't worry, again, we like him, we want to be with him, but nothing good ever occurs in his life, which is why he wanted to get that state of bewilderment and just the universe. For, for Douglas Adams, the universe is an absurdist joke. Mm-hmm. None of it makes sense, and we cannot take any of it seriously, which actually, if you want to view in a certain way, is quite bleak. <laughs> you know, there's no point to any of it. Um, <laughs> and yet it's wrapped up in a comedy joke. So, it, uh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, how on earth 
do you guys approach writing humor? Because a lot of authors are terrified of trying to be funny in case it falls flat on it. So like, how, how does humor come to you? How do you weave it into your books? What kind of structures do you use? Is it planned? Is it ad hoc? Like, talk to me about how you guys are so funny. <clears throat> so in terms of how we go about it, I, I think Ian has already said, I very much favor the big slapstick scenes. So we, we quite often, as we're planning a novel, we, we think about where those are gonna be. And you know, generally there's one towards the end and the, 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 the more than likely will be some um, in between as well. But once we can picture those solidly in our minds, you know, really good, funny, it's an action scene. It's an action scene where stupid things happen uh, and we write them like action scenes, but they are the big rocks, if you like, that we, we use in our planning. And then of course, there are so many other different comedy techniques. We, we start, always with character because having characters that will bounce off each other interact with each other conflict with each other is important for any type of writing but definitely comedy depends on that because if you put these characters in a lift you want them to be um you don't want them to be agreeing you want them to be falling out and, and doing stupid things and my very favorite kind of character is an agent of chaos so if we can have a book that features somebody who will do the unthinkable thing or say the unthinkable thing, then I'm happy because a character that is prepared to be outrageous and do outrageous things is, is, is marvelous for comedy. Have you got some examples, um, maybe mainstream examples of agents of chaos, just in case people don't, <clears throat> can't quite picture? I, I think it's interesting with the agent of chaos, you actually tend to find either two main things going on. Uh, one is either that there is a central person who is an agent of chaos. Uh, and in fact, like him or not, Ricky Gervais's David Brent is that character in The Office. The Office environment he's in is normal. And then he comes along and acts like a complete asshole in the most excruciating way possible. And it's the fallout response for that. Also, Mackenzie, Mackenzie Crook's character, uh, Gareth, is it? Uh, you know, he also works in that sense. Um, again, Mrs. Brown and Mrs. Brown's boys, um, you know, is, is an example there where it is it is that one character who subverts the world. Uh, if you're an older person, a really good example would be, you know, uh, some mothers do have them. You know, the the, uh, the Michael Crawford character, but he is an incompetent human being. Uh, Mr. Bean, again, sorry, I'm, I'm making this now. The inverse is actually where you have a, which is less common, where you have one sane character, but the world is mad. And in fact, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a good example of that. Arthur Dent is normal, but everything else is wrong. Um, I think one of the most amazing examples where you see the switch is Blackadder. Again, I know I'm referring to 30-year-old TV comedy now, but the first series of Blackadder uh, Blackadder himself, Ed Rowan Atkinson, is an idiot prince trying to make his way in the world. And then series two comes on and the magic transforms. And in fact, Edmund Blackadder, series two, three, and four, is the only sane person in a world of idiots. And the comedy comes from him having that bounce off him, the, the, the world of morons. Uh, Baldrick is a perfect agent of chaos. And you... Uh, 
If I say Hugh Grant, I don't mean that at all, do I? Hugh Laurie. Hang on, Hugh Laurie. Hugh, Hugh Laurie's uh, Prince Prince George in, in Blackout of Three is an amazing agent of chaos. He's a moron. Um, so, you know, I think I think those are some really, you know, good examples. And obviously, you know, sometimes it's done much more subtly. Um, you know, if you think about some great contemporary comedy, uh, take something like Fleabag, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, actually... There's a much more subtle blend of agents and chaos going on there. I'm, I'm sure I've gone done a whole list there, Heidi, but I don't know if I've missed any of your favourites. No, I think that's a great list. That's a, that's a terrific list. You definitely mentioned some of the ones I was going to say. That is an amazing... I was just going to say, that is an amazing list. And, like, you have given me a framework in which to look at humour that I'd never really heard before. Nobody's ever talked to me about how you either have a central agent of chaos uh, or you or the chaos is everybody else around you. And that is enlightening because I am definitely going to watch things in a different way now. Like, it's so interesting because I'm guessing Phoebe is the agent of chaos because she's she just... Is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I definitely got a. I definitely understood what you're what you're talking about. I love that so much. I love understanding um, like concepts and like how stuff works. Like and to, like I'm obsessed with deconstructing things, and I have never looked at humor like that. So that I am definitely going to be going and looking at like where the agent of chaos is and and like whether or not it's the world around or like the main character. I think I quite like it when. Oh, no, I don't know, because I like it both ways. It's a different type of humour, isn't it, I suppose, when it's the main it, character it who's the agent of chaos versus the world around. Yeah. Yes. I mean, because I think one of the mistakes people do make when they start writing comedy is that throw everything at it, and if that make everybody an agent of chaos. So if, if you have a room full of comedy idiots, then actually the, the viewer has, you know, no point of reference, no one to latch on to. Well, it's the, the contrast, isn't yeah. it? It's the so contrast from, between sanity and insanity that's funny. Yeah, yeah. so if you let you take, I've got my comedy references are going further back in time, but if you look at things like the black and white, the Three Stooges, one of the reasons why I think contemporary audiences, but some people find them very hard to like, is because they're all idiots. It is, it is a trio of idiots going on there. I think one of the things I would like to obviously think about with comedy is in fact that notion of why do we laugh in the first place? And one of the theories of laughter, which I, I, I think works for me as comedy, which is why I think it's horror, is that comedy is usually a response to oh, a thing has happened. It might be terrible. Oh no, it's not terrible. Ha ha ha, we all laugh. So for instance, you see someone fall over, we are shocked, but they're okay. So we laugh at them. It's a social signal to everybody around to basically kind of go, that thing you were worried about, don't worry about it. You mean so you're actually, not supposed to laugh if they're not okay? <laughs> that's, that, that's the idea. If an old lady slips on the ice and she's not okay, it's not all right to laugh. You know, I would definitely that makes, laugh. <laughs> that makes you a bad person. I know. Okay? <laughs> so, so I am that friend. You, oh, you are you're a shocking human being. I don't, okay, but I pick you things up fine. You know, this is why friends laugh at each other a lot because it's a social signal to always say, this is okay. So two of your big comedic things are either the laugh of surprise, a thing comes along that you didn't expect. So old TV reference coming along here, 
one foot in the grave, Victor Meldrew, I don't believe it. His usually came from, he'd get a parcel delivered, and inside is a giant inflatable banana, or a puppy, or a, you know, a, a, a bizarrely impossible thing happened. Suddenly there is comedy from that. I think the inverse of that, which, which readers like a lot, is, is, the, is the comedy of expectation fulfilled. So, for instance, you know, if you have a big pile of wobbly cakes and there's that pile of wobbly cakes and you keep looking at the big pile of wobbly cakes, when the big pile of wobbly cakes does fall over and hit somebody, we laugh because we have our expectations fulfilled by what we see. And in that sense, it, it is like horror or indeed like a detective thing almost. We want to, we, we, we respond to the surprise or we re responded to the, I knew that was going to happen. Because so, readers and viewers love to think they're cleverer than the person presenting the thing. That's what you always got to make them feel, that the so, reader is one step ahead. So talk about that a bit more then, because I'm guessing there is like a method or a structure or a like a tactic that you guys apply in terms of setting up a funny. Um, so, yeah, what what is that methodology or the setup or like how does that like how does that work in terms of a of a of a joke in order to fulfill that expectation like what is it that you're doing to create the expectation i suppose in the first place like yeah how does the structure of it work um i, I was going to suggest to you because this is an opportunity to actually at all levels of comedy and writing to talk about the rule of three um the rule of three is important um if 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 you mention, or if you have a list, um, or, or a, a series of mentions, or a series of appearances, three is a pleasing number. Three pleases us um, both for comedy and, and for other things as well. So uh, yeah, if, if you're going to have a, um, a, a a list of features or a list of funny, uh, or yeah, if you if you're describing something in in a, a a sentence, even you can say it was this thing, fairly sane. This thing, again, fairly sane, and this thing, completely outrageous. And, and, and jokes work like that, whether they're at the, at the, the micro level in the sentence or at the macro level throughout a novel or even a novel series. Uh, this is where Ian and his spreadsheets uh, come in real handy because if I, if I write something outrageous, Ian will go, wait, we can foreshadow that. We can mention that thing or that character earlier in the novel and the reader will be delighted that it's paid off here. And I think so it, it, there's an element of the Chekhov's gun thing, you know, and I think with the current books we're writing at the moment, because they tend to involve um, big comedy scenes involving machinery or vehicles or something. So the one we're writing at the moment involves a tank. So that uh, someone accidentally buys a tank at the beginning. I'm talking like a military tank. They buy a tank at the beginning of the novel. They're going to repair it to the middle of the novel. And at the end of the novel, of course, they're going to drive it around town and run over everything and, but the, the, the build-up of things, come, and it also again, again works at it does work at that sentence level. So you know the idea that you know Heidi and I spoke about the fact that you know we had to uh, bury a murdered body at the weekend. Well, you know, a you know I had to bury a body. B the police are after me, and C I broke my nail. You know, and it's the third thing that that basically you know it's not a good one. I'm sorry, but you know you know it's, it's the third thing that always tips it over. So you've got, you've got a lot of foreshadowing and payoff. And either you pay it off as a surprise, so the readers go, oh, I never saw that coming. Um, or indeed, you pay it off and they know it's happening and everyone feels 
really smug about themselves. That's a, that's a really brilliant quality to get out of a reader is to make them feel smug and clever as though they've beaten the writer. Mm. Um, they like that, but you can't overdo that because then you're either going to be patronizing or indeed you're going to be bewildering. So there's that kind of laying out your breadcrumbs just right. Um, and how you do that, yeah. Do you think there are any mistakes or like, have you guys made any mistakes with humor? Do you think there's anything that you've seen that's fallen flat or like any big no-nos for you guys in humor? Uh, definitely mistakes are, are easy to make. Um, there's the mistake of not going far enough so sometimes when you write a, a joke or a thing that you think is funny, uh, maybe it's maybe, maybe you've exaggerated a character or, or maybe you've used a, a simile and said, this character looks like, you know, a boiled frog. And you think, actually, actually, your first thought is rarely the best. You know, you, you go further, you think of something much worse. You know, um, I, I don't know if a boiled salamander would be better than a boiled frog, but you, you, you make it bigger, you make it stupider. Um, so there's the mistake of not going far enough. Yes. There, there, are, there are definitely um, mistakes, tonal mistakes as well, as, as, as we learn more about, uh, about what it's not okay to make fun of as society. You know, you can see that humour from the 20th century very often falls into traps that we wouldn't fall into anymore. And I dare say and some it, of our work has fallen foul. But it, I mean, in that sense, it, it sensibilities of people, because the people are strange. You can write whole books about people being tortured, being in hell, people being murdered. But if in your book you kill one dog or <laughs> one cat, <laughs> you know, that can pop people right out and kind of go, you know, that Yorkshire Terrier got run over on page 30 think it's funny do you um, how does and, john you know, wick work as a film like how the fuck did they get away with that i oh, was literally see, they, that's the you see that that's the great thing you see john wick because he has that safe it's not a save the cat it's kill the dog isn't it so you know any any decent book you know somewhere hidden in there is a save the cat moment where in the first 15 minutes the central character does something pointlessly nice just so that the viewer or the reader goes, ah, yeah, you're my guy, you are, I like you. Whereas John Wick does the opposite. You know, 10, 15 minutes in, the bad guy kills the dog. Sorry, I know, I know I've totally ruined that now. But the bad spoiler. guy kills the <laughs> Spoiler. Um, bad guy kills the dog. And, and, and actually then, as far as viewers are concerned, apparently that justifies John Wick killing dozens of people for the next hour and a half. That but is literally totally the whole plot of the film as well. <laughs> that is, and, and, and actually, that is, that, that's one of the reasons why, again, I don't want to hammer the horror analogy. That's why John Wick is, in many ways, a comedy. We are watching physical events play out in an appealing way. It, it is set piece after set piece, but yes, it's guns and bullets and knives and brains, but it is actually, in that sense, it, it taps into some of the same kind of story dimensions and slapstick. We are just watching a sequence of pleasing events that suit our sensibilities because his dog got killed. Um, you know, it's astonishing, really. I can't believe we are at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this has been amazing. I, 
Ah, oh, I have got so many ideas. I love all of the new frames and angles like about humor. So thank you both so much. However, I do have the most important question to both of you. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? Oh, gosh. So I, I, I want to, I'm going to cheat now and do one about Heidi. Um, we <laughs> wrote, <laughs> this, is, this is what happens though. You see, Heidi suggests a thing and I just get dragged along. We mm -hmm. wrote a, a series of books, Odd Jobs, about the government agency whose job it is to deal with horrible gods from the other side and keep everything nice and wrapped. And, and Heidi just said to me, um, I'd like to fake a monster sighting. Um, and she basically said to me, I mean, effectively she said to me, come and meet me at the canal at dawn. And this was in the middle of Birmingham. And I, I went into city centre Birmingham. And what Heidi had done was she'd used uh, sort of like insulation pipe and poles and tape and paper to make um, fake tentacles. Um, and we spent the morning, um, you know, I felt like a right idiot because I, I, I tend not to buy into this stuff. But dangling the tentacles into the canal from bridges with uh, like fishing wire to make it visible. So the tentacles appear to be coming out of the canal. Um, and then Heidi, and I'm sure this is now a crime or something, but, you know, then created some Twitter, Twitter profiles of, you know, made up people who had spotted a monster in the canals of Birmingham Oh my uh, and, and try to uh, promote our book through blurry photographs of monsters. Um, it didn't necessarily. I mean, again, like so many, it didn't, it didn't didn't go viral. But you know, it's like you know, this is the thing with spouses. I then go home at like one o'clock in the afternoon, and goes, you know, my wife says to me, "Where have you been? Oh, I've been faking monster sightings in Birmingham using fishing line insulation foam." Um, <laughs> You know, and, and that's it. I, I had immense fun. It wasn't my oh rebelliousness. My I was I'm, I was just the, the, the sidekick on that one. That was a lot of fun. It was it was actually fun making it. Um, it, it in case anybody's thinking of faking their own monster sighting, it was a pool noodle. Uh, a pool noodle uh, was the core <laughs> of the temple. Bits of sliced up insulation, uh, pipe insulation as the as the suckers, you know, all glued on. In, in graded sizes, because obviously, you know, you, you, your monster's got a, a thinner tip um, on his tentacle. And then we, yeah, sprayed it all a delightful sort of sludgy, greeny, browny colour. And, and we had to work out the fishing line thing. And it was brilliant. It was I'm brilliant. sensing <laughs> that, like, maybe Heidi is the agent of chaos in this collaborative relationship. Well, <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, Heidi, do you have a rebellion? Well, I, I, I think there are more stories like that one. Um, impudence is my speciality. Uh, we, we did become writers in residence of a phone box um, as well. I know that's not quite as exciting as, as, the, uh, as the, monster, the monster thing, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a lovely red phone box in a village called Baxterley. And we applied, no, I applied. I went to the parish council and said, have you got any writers in residence for your phone box? And they, they said, what? 
And so then I said, well, what, what would happen is we would just be able to say we're writers in residence of that phone box and like, you know, forever, please. And can we do that? And they went, OK. And so now <laughs> we are forever writers in residence of the red phone box in Baxterley. I mean, because again, that one, because then, you know, we, we, we obviously, uh, you got that into the local newspaper. I think it was the Tamworth Herald, I think it probably was. Um, and then that got picked up by a national newspaper. So, I mean, I mean, it, it was like, you know, like like two inches in, in, in the Metro, which is a free paper. But it's just kind of, yeah, you know, here's another crazy thing, you know, and it was writers in residence of the phone. But, you know, so, you know, it... And it cost, I don't, I don't mean it's all about money, but it cost nothing. It was It was just, you know, make the effort to do it, you know. And I think there is that sense, and this is a really important thing, actually, I think, from, from, from what Heidi should teach the world, is that if you've got a stupid idea and you just ask people if you can do the stupid idea, they'll usually just say yes out of bewilderment. <laughs> you know, um, they'll just go, okay. Um, yeah, and, you know, and I think I, I think that's um, you know, so it's almost like you know, do you need an excuse to do stupid things? Because you know, frankly, if you can give it any mild justification at all, the world will let you do stupid things. Um, oh, this, fantastic! This has been the actual most fun. I I have tears in my <laughs> eyeballs from laughing. Uh, like everybody needs a Heidi and Ian, I think, in their lives. Like somebody to keep you on track and somebody to 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 generate all of the fun and the giggles and the and the and the telephone box residencies. <laughs> it's just <laughs> fantastic. Um, can you tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and like anything else that you would like to add? Uh, we do have a website um, which is called Pigeon Park Press. And actually, there are some resources on there. Some of the stuff we've talked about with comedy techniques uh, are on there. And, and some ideas. We've put some spare ideas on a thing called the Ideas Shelf. Um, we, 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 there's, a, there's a comedy writing workshop that we did based on the Adrian Mole books. We were, we were very lucky to be able to, to do that at Leicester University, who have the Sutan's End archive. So, yeah. There's some fun stuff that you can go and find on the website and it also has links to our books. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time today. And of course, a giant thank you to all of the show's listeners and the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a bunch of bonus goodies, then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Heidi Goody and Ian Grant. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am joined by an indie fucking powerhouse. I am joined by none other than Alana Johnson. I am so excited to bring you this episode. We talk about marketing. We talk about systems, consistency, process, how on earth she gets her enormous word counts. And yeah, it is a cracking episode. Join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.